One summer when I was eight years old, I was visiting my cousins in Ohio. And they lived on a farm, and we were bored and looking for something to do. And that's when we came up with this brilliant idea that we would take the pieces of gravel from the gravel driveway and take those little rocks and throw them at the cars that drove by the front of their house. <laughs> my cousins lived near a busy road, and we had noticed uh, the shiny hubcaps on many of the cars that went racing by. And so we thought we'd have a contest and see who could score, score the most points by hitting those shiny wheels with our little pieces of gravel. Now, we didn't think it was that big of a deal. Hey, it's just a hubcap. But we didn't understand the danger of what we were about to do. That instead of a wheel, that rock might hit a window. Or the noise of that rock hitting the hubcap might scare the driver and cause him to veer off the road. We didn't take the time to think through all the implications of what we were getting ready to do. Hey, we're just kids. We're just trying to have some fun. But that was no excuse. Fortunately, before we got very far along in the game, there was a driver who had the nerve to slam on the brakes and jump out of the car and give us a holy rebuke. Though I need to be honest, I will never forget the look on this lady's face. Many of her words to us were far from holy. But she got our attention, and that rock-throwing contest came to an immediate end. Now, how many times as adults have we needed that same kind of admonition? You know, sometimes as adults, we're just not aware of the danger that we're in. Or we, we don't understand the trouble that we're causing for others. And we don't get that because nobody took the time to talk to us. Nobody ever cared enough to warn us. Nobody ever cared enough to take the time to point out the foolishness of what we were doing. Dan Schaefer tells about an elderly man who had this terrible driving record. I mean, this man should never have been out on the road. And yet this elderly man would laugh and make a joke about all the tickets that he had. Well, one day this elderly man ran through a stop sign and killed a young man on a motorcycle. The sad thing is this elderly man had run through that same stop sign numerous times before, and many people had seen him do it, and yet nobody ever said anything. They just let it go. Nobody ever cared enough to, to turn him in. Nobody ever cared enough to report the rec reckless driving. And as a result, one day, he ends up taking the life of an innocent human being. This scripture that we're going to study this morning, God is reminding us that because we're a part of this church, we are part of a family. This church is more than just some club or group or institution. No, we're family. And we're not just any kind of family. We are God's family. And in this family, we have a responsibility to one another, a responsibility to draw out the best in each other. And a part of what that means is when we see a member of our family heading in the wrong direction, when we see a brother and sister in Christ beginning to take on some bad habits, when we see one of our own beginning to act in ways that are not only not wise for them, but certainly not helpful for the people around them, then we have a responsibility to do something about that. We need to care enough to come alongside and put our arms around and say, hey, this has got to stop. What you're doing is not good. It's not good for you, and it's hurting the people around you. We love you too much to let you keep acting this way. And here's an example of how that's done, what we see in our scripture. So as we read through these verses, I, I want you to notice not only what the Apostle Paul is saying to this church here in the city of Corinth, but I want you to notice the way in which he says it. Now, in order for us to appreciate the meaning of what we're about to read, let me give you a little background. This church that Paul is working with, it got started about three years before this letter was written, which means none of the believers are here, none of the believers here in this church have been Christians for very long. Nobody here grew up in a Christian home. Nobody has that kind of heritage to fall back on. They're all new to the faith. They all have a lot of growing up to do. 
Now, that doesn't excuse any of the foolish things that they're doing or any of the sinful things they're doing, like we're going to see examples of in chapter 5 and chapter 6. But what that means is if these young Christians are going to learn and they're going to grow, they need a father figure. They need some spiritual parents. You know, when your daughter was six years old, did you really expect her to educate herself? Did you expect her to get all the way from kindergarten to being a senior in high school without any kind of guidance or, or supervision? Did you really expect her to figure out this school thing all on her own? No. No, you sent her to a specific kind of school. You, through the years, you paid for all kinds of books and tutors. Through the years, you worked hand in hand with all kinds of teachers to give her the education she needed because you knew she can't do this by herself. When your son needed to be potty trained, did you really expect him to learn how to do this all by himself? No oversight, no supervision. <laughs> no way. When your child wanted to learn how to play soccer, what would you do? You had him join a team. You made sure they got a chance to play and practice under the guidance and help of a really good soccer coach, right? So why is it when somebody becomes a brand new Christian, we don't do any follow-up? We don't provide any help or training. We never take the time to teach them how to read their Bibles or teach them how to pray. No, we say, hey, they're a believer. They got a ticket to heaven. They're good. Hey, they'll figure all this other stuff out by themselves. They can teach themselves how to follow Jesus. No, no. Nobody can disciple themselves. God made us to be a part of a family where every one of us, every one of us needs those older, more mature Christians. We need those spiritual parents whom guide and teach and love and encourage. And that's what we see here. Take a look at this with me. First Corinthians chapter four, let's begin reading with verse 14. The apostle Paul says, I'm writing this not to shame you. Now he's got some tough things to say, but here's the spirit, the attitude in which he said, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you and to warn you as my dear children. Do you hear the tone of voice? Do you hear the love, the affection? Do you feel the concern that the Apostle Paul has for the people in this church? They're his family. They're not just the members of uh, some kind of group. No, they're his spiritual family. You know, when your child gets sick or your child's underachieving at school, do you scold the child and kick them out of the house? No. When they're struggling, when they're in trouble, you do the very opposite. Now everybody in the family rallies around them. Now you give that child more attention than they've ever had before. And why? Because you want them to get well. You want them to do better. That's the kind of concern that Paul has for the church. He wants to bring out the best in them. And so to emphasize his love for these people, now in verse 15, he's going to make a contrast. There's a difference in the way you care for people. It's like the difference between a guardian and a parent. And boy, that's a that's, there's a vast difference between those two roles. Notice what he says. He says, even if you've had 10,000 guardians in Christ Jesus. Now, for a lot of us, that word guardian doesn't mean a lot. But if you were back in the first century world, man, that would ring a lot of bells, especially if you're in the city of Corinth, where they have a number of wealthy families. And many of those wealthy families would basically hire somebody else to raise their kids for them. You know, while the parents went off to work, while they went off to play, here's this professional guardian who every day makes sure the kids get to school on time. At the end of the day, makes sure they get safely back home, makes sure they get all the homework done, makes sure they complete all the chores, and basically makes sure they always stay out of trouble. Well, you read the literature back in that day and time, and you see the pictures that are drawn of these professional guardians. They do not have a good reputation. They were known to be mean and demanding and harsh. Almost every time they're talked about or every time they, you see a picture of them, they always have some kind of metal rod or some big wooden stick in their hand. 
Because the idea was this, that you could just picture the guardian saying, hey, kid, I'm not your parent, your real parent. The only reason I'm here is because I'm being paid. I'm being paid to babysit you, which means I don't have to like you. All I've got to make sure is you behave. And so he'd take that metal rod or that big wooden stick, and he'd begin to shake it in a threatening manner, and he'd say, whatever it takes to keep you in line, I'm going to do it. Nobody wanted a guardian. So Paul's saying here, I didn't come to you as a guardian. I'm not here to be your boss. I'm not here to act like some kind of bully and force my way and my will upon you. No, and I'm not doing this just because this is my job. No, his love goes way, way beyond that. Notice how he explains it. He says, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father, your spiritual parent through the gospel. He's the one that helped lead many of these people to the Lord. And because he's brought them to Jesus, he now feels a sense of responsibility. Now that I've brought you to Jesus, I want you to get better and better acquainted with him. I want to see you grow up in your faith. And so one of the ways he's going to do this is verse 16. He's going to say, let me be an example to you. Let me help lead the way. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me, meaning here's how I'm learning about Jesus. Here's how every day I stay close to the Lord. You know, over the years, this is what's been helpful to me. Maybe this would help you stay near to Jesus too. My dad has always been more than just my biological parent. He's been my spiritual parent. And years ago, when I was getting ready to go to Bible college, he recognized the danger I was facing. I didn't see it, but he did. So one day he pulled me aside and he gave me a little challenge. He said, hey, David, there, there's something you need to understand. That there's a big difference between studying the Bible just to prepare for a test, just to try to get a good grade and make sure you pass that class. A big difference between that and reading the Bible so you can draw near to Jesus. There's a big difference between preparing, you know, reading and studying the Bible just so you can prepare a sermon or get yourself ready to teach a Sunday school class and, and reading the Bible just so you can meet God. You know, the one you do to complete assignment, the one you do to perform a task, but the other you're doing so that your, your life can be changed. David, what I'm trying to emphasize is I don't want your experience at Bible college to be merely academic. I really want to see you grow in the Lord. So do me this favor. Every time you listen to a sermon in chapel and every time you're studying a lesson there in that classroom and every time you open up to read your Bible, you just stop for a moment. And ask yourself two questions, just to make sure you don't take any of this for granted. Ask yourself, so what? And then ask yourself, now what? That first question, so what? You're reminding yourself, hey, God didn't just give me this message, this lesson, this scripture, just to inform, just to put some facts in my brain. No, this particular passage of scripture that I was just reading, God gave that to me so he could transform my life. So after you read and study, you've got to slow down for a moment and say, okay, what did he just give me? What has the Lord just taught me that's now going to make a difference in my life? And once you determine the answer to that question, the so what, then you go on to the next step and you ask yourself, now what? How do I take that lesson and turn into action? What's going to be different in my life in this coming week? Now that I've had this encounter with God, what's going to be true about me now that wasn't true about me before? And will other people, other people begin to see the change? Will they begin to see a change in my attitude? Will they begin to see more and more of the personality of Jesus shining through my life because I just spent time with Jesus there in the Word? Wow, that conversation with my father gave me a whole new way of reading the Bible. And from that moment on, my personal walk with the Lord just became more and more real to me. Well, over the years, there's been many other people like that that God's put in my life. 
over the years, there's been so many people that God's put in my life to help me better understand what it really means to follow Jesus. Well, it's the same thing here. It's not just Paul who's working with the church at Corinth, teaching and training and loving and encouraging the people here. No, through the years, he sends all kinds of other spiritual parents to help disciple them. Here's an example, verse 17. He says, for this reason, I sent to you, Timothy, my son, whom I love. That expression, my son, whom I love, it's in the Greek. It's the very same expression he used in verse 14. When he's talking to the people of Corinth, he says, and you are my dear children. In the Greek, it just literally reads, my beloved children. Well, now verse 17, he's saying, hey, here's an example. Here's somebody, a child that I helped raise in the faith, literally. Raised in the faith, now they become full-grown, got this mature faith. Now you can actually see what I'm hoping for you. I sent to you Timothy, my beloved child, who is faithful in the Lord. And he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. One of the preachers I used to like to listen to was E.V. Hill. He's not with us anymore. He's now with the Lord for years. He led a church in, in Los Angeles. But I love to hear that guy preach because when he would preach, he would always challenge me, but always challenge me in a good way. I mean, E.V. Hill was one of those guys when he'd stand on the platform, he didn't beat around the bush. He'd let you know this is right and this is wrong and you shouldn't be doing what's wrong. But he always had a way of doing it where it made you want to do better. And then one day I understood why, why he was like that. A lot of it had to do with his wife. His wife's name was Jane, and when Jane died, Evie Hill preached her funeral. He preached his wife's funeral. And that day when he stood before the congregation, he said, Folks, you need to appreciate what a special blessing my wife was to me. So he told him this story. He said in the early days of their marriage, they were having financial difficulty. Evie Hill said, I was never good with money. An example, he said, uh, one time I took, uh, just foolishly, took all of her life savings and invested in this new service station. I thought, you know, in addition to preaching, I'll run this business on the side, and that'll help us get back on our feet again. Well, the business failed, and now their financial situation was worse than it ever been before. Well, one night, shortly after that fiasco with the gas station, Evie Hill came home, and the house was just dark. And he thought, what's going on? He comes through the front door, and he looks into the dining room, and there's his wife, Jane. She had very carefully prepared a special candlelight dinner just for the two of them. Well, Evie Hill blew up, been a bad day, he's in a bad mood. Jane, what's the meaning of this? You know, we, don't, we have no finances here. You are foolishly spending our money on something really fancy. How could you? And his wife, Jane, just very sweetly replied, well, I thought with all the troubles we were having, this might be a way to kind of take our minds off of that for a while and just enjoy some time together by candlelight. Evie Hill said, my heart just melted. He thought, I've been so mean to her. She's always so sweet and kind to me. What did I do to deserve such a, a wonderful wife? So he immediately calmed down, and he apologized. Said, You're right. This would be good for two, the two of us. So he went into the bathroom to wash his hands. He flipped the switch, and nothing happened. He tried the switch again, and no lights coming on. He feels his way down the hallway. He comes into the bedroom, tries the switch there. No lights. He stumbles his way back through the darkness. He comes to the dining room and says, Jane, why is the electricity off? And that's when his wife begins to break down and cry and says, oh, Evie, I know you've been working hard. I know that both of us were doing the very best we can to, to make ends meet, but we didn't have enough money to pay the light bill, so they shut the electricity off. And I know with all this trouble we had with the gas station, that didn't work out, and you've had all this stuff in your mind. I just didn't want to bring it to your attention. I didn't want to trouble you, so I thought maybe tonight we just eat by candlelight. 
Now, as Evie Hill's preaching this funeral, he begins to tear up. He says, folks, you need to appreciate something about my wife. She grew up in a very prestigious family. Wealthy, well-to-do, highly regarded by everybody in the community. I mean, she grew up in a home where all her needs were always well provided for. So that night when the two of us are sitting there in the dark, you know what she could have said to me? She could have just raked me over the coals. She could have scolded me, say, Evie, you know I wasn't raised this way. I've never been in this kind of situation before. I was brought up in the home of Dr. Carruthers. We never had our lights cut off. How could you let this happen? Evie said she could have just crushed me and broken my spirit and totally demoralized me. But she didn't. Instead, that night, he said she just very gently reached out and took hold of my hand and said, Evie, somehow, some way, we're going to find a way to turn the lights on again. But until we do, let's just enjoy the candlelight. Now, that's the spirit, the attitude you see displayed in this scripture. I mean, here's a church at Corinth. A church that got so much wrong with it. So many mistakes have been made. So many sins have been committed. There's so much division, so much scandal. Everything looks so dark. But instead of coming to this church with a big stick in his hand and acting like a bully and just saying, I'm going to let you have it. No, no. The Apostle Paul comes as a father and he gently puts his arm around him and says, listen, you know and I know this is not what the Lord wants for us. Enough of this. Enough of the darkness. Let's find a way to turn the lights on again. Now, when you step back from this and you start to think, okay, what have I just learned? What am I supposed to take away from this? What has God just taught me? The lesson that I get is this. You cannot disciple yourself. You were made by God to be a part of a family, not just any kind of family, a church family. And that means more than just showing up on a Sunday morning. You know as well as I do. You can have two people sitting together side by side in the same room, and yet if they're sitting back to back, they're 25,000 miles away from being able to look each other in the eye, physically in close proximity, but emotionally disconnected and distant. That doesn't work. That's not how you do church. That's not the kind of belonging that God is talking about here. The, the kind of belonging that he desires for us is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You remember? Forsake not the assembly. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24, 25, he says, you've got to meet and meet frequently. And every time you meet, you always do so for a purpose. And you remember what that was? So you can stimulate, so you can spur one another on to love and good deeds. In other words, every time we meet, every one of us ought to be able to walk away from that meeting so much better for it. Because you were investing in me, and I was investing in you. Because you were committed to drawing out the best in me, and I was committed to drawing out the best in you. Because in that meeting, you were doing everything you could to strengthen and enhance my life for the Lord, and I was doing everything I could to help you get better connected to the Lord too. Now, obviously, you cannot enjoy those kind of deep, deep relationships with everybody in the church. Nobody here has that kind of relational capacity. So that means within the bigger church, you've got to have, I mean, you've got to have this. You've got to have that smaller group of Christian friends. Maybe it's just a circle of two or three where one is mentoring the others. Or maybe it's a circle of 10 or 12 as you get together as a discipleship group. Or maybe it's just a group of friends who, in addition to really being together on a Sunday morning, once or twice every week, you meet together for breakfast. And then the rest of the week, you're constantly calling, texting, checking on each other. Hey, what's been the best part of your week so far? And tell me, honestly, what's been the worst part of your week? 
And how has that bad experience affected you? How do we need to help? How do we need to pray? How do we and your friends need to rally around you so we can help you move on from that bad experience and help you stay closer to the Lord? You see, until you have those kind of deep relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't belong to the family in the way God wants you to belong. Because the truth is this, nobody can disciple themselves. Now that's the so what of the scripture. Here's the now what. Rather than waiting for somebody else to pull me in, to help me get more involved, no. I need to be responsible. I need to take the initiative. I need to take the step of faith and say, what do I need to do to get more plugged in so that I can have those spiritual parents, those men and women who can teach and shepherd, and so that I can learn how to be a spiritual parent to others as well. I'll finish with this. Tammy Harris was looking, true story, Tammy Harris was looking for her, her birth mom. She's 21 years old, living and working in Roanoke, Virginia, and she'd been searching for more than a year and still hadn't got any results. She was feeling real discouraged. But what Tammy did realize is that her birth mom, Joyce, had been searching for her, been searching for the past 20 years. And what neither Joyce or Tammy realized was that the two of them had actually been working side by side at the very same convenience store for the past two years. Well, one day, Joyce overheard Tammy telling a friend, you know, I really want to connect with my birth mom. I'm just not getting anywhere in this search. And that made Joyce curious. I mean, Joyce and Tammy were really good friends. So the next day, Joyce pulls Tammy aside, and she begins to ask some questions, and they begin to compare stories, and then they take a look at the birth certificates, and all of a sudden, they realize they were more than just friends. More than just co-workers, they're actually mother and daughter. And immediately they hugged and they just held on to each other for the longest time. And both Tammy and Joy said, it was the best day of my life. Now, isn't that something? Two years working side by side, not understanding, not appreciating. There was so much more to this relationship than what either one of them realized. Is that true of us? How long will we as believers sit side by side in a church building not realizing God didn't just call us to believe. God also called us to belong, to be a part of a family, to be brothers and sisters in Christ who because of our deep relationships with each other, we're all the time helping each other to enjoy a better, greater, deeper, richer life with the Lord. Let's pray.